0: What's up, everybody? It's Nick Davenport, a.k.a. Mr. Mental Muscle, and welcome back to the Mental Muscle Podcast. Now, today we have a special guest, Amy Moore, and She's an author of five books. She's been featured on CNN, Good Morning America, Forbes. The list really goes on. I don't wanna overdo it, but I'll let her talk a little bit about it. So she's a world-class leader in the, the process of mental strength, mental toughness, something I do talk about a lot too. So that's why I'm really excited for you guys to learn and hear from her. So I won't talk too much. I'll let you take it away, give a introduction, and let's get into it.
1: Oh, awesome. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm a therapist turned accidental author. I wrote an article called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do that went viral. 50 million people read it, which led to my first book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. That was nine years ago. Since then, as you said, I've been able to write a series of books for parents, for women, for kids. And now the 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do workbook is on sale as well.
0: So, yeah. So let's get straight into it. Mental strength. That term, I think in my room, because we talked a little bit before this, I work in a sport room with a lot of athletes, and the term mental toughness or mental strength, it gets thrown out a lot. So what is your definition? Like, what does it mean when you talk about it?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked because I see so many people that confuse like acting tough with being strong, and they think if I pretend like I don't care about anything or act like I'm not in any pain, then that makes me strong, but really they're just acting tough. So when it comes to strength, I would say there's three parts to it, the way you think, the way you feel, and the way you behave. The thinking part is about knowing that sometimes our thoughts are irrational and you don't have to believe everything you think. Your brain will lie to you. It will predict catastrophic things. It will tell you you can't do something, but you don't have to believe those thoughts. The emotional aspect is about knowing you don't have to be happy all the time. You can tolerate feeling sad or you can be anxious, but you don't have to stay stuck there either. We have some control over how we feel. We can choose to do things differently. We can choose to look at something from a different perspective. We can shift our emotions. And the behavioral aspect is about knowing sometimes you have to push yourself to do things you don't want to do. Like maybe I don't feel like going to the gym, but I'm going to put, get myself there anyway because I trust that I'm going to feel better once I work out. Or it's about knowing like, you know, I even though my anxiety is telling me not to sit down and pay this stack of bills, I'm going to face it anyway because I know that that's what's good for me. So it's about making those choices. And when you put those three things together, then you have mental strength.
0: I like that because a lot of times what I've noticed in my career is exactly what you said, trying to act like it doesn't bother you. And a lot of times people think mental toughness is being unaffected. And I would argue, maybe you agree that a mentally tough person will address the things that bother them. It's just a matter of how do I cope with it, right?
1: Exactly. And sometimes people will say, like, you check on your strong friends. Well, no, your strong friends are the ones that are probably talking about their emotions. So you aren't the people that are pretending like they don't care, or somebody will say, like, um, you know, you get through things so unscathed, that must be because you're so strong, they'll say to somebody and it's like, no, just because you're acting like nothing bothers you in life doesn't mean that, that you are a strong person. Sometimes it's about having the courage to ask for help or it's about admitting that you don't have all the answers. Because when you really think about it, that takes way more courage than it does to pretend like, well, I don't care. It didn't bother me. I didn't get that job or it's not a big deal. But we tend to do that sometimes. We have this tough exterior because we're just trying to protect ourselves. So it takes a lot of vulnerability to be a strong person.
0: So, yeah, that that makes me think of a lot of times people talk about stoicism and I guess there's a fine line. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know a lot of people and I don't want to like persecute men, but it's like I know that's very big with men of like. Does the the traditional, like, I have to take everything, like you said, don't share my thoughts or my emotion. Is there like a fine line between the two with stoicism and mental strength? Do they parallel each other or do they complement each other?
1: Yeah, I think they can complement each other. I hear some people who think that stoicism is about like, again, being just like a blank slate, like letting everything bounce off of you, but we're human beings. And so it's, I think really about just recognizing that you can't control everything, but you can control how you respond to it. And that suffering and emotional pain is part of life and that building mental strength won't make it so you don't get hurt, but it will make it so that you know when you do get hurt that you can handle it. And part of handling it might be asking for help, getting support, taking the steps that you need to to get through it. Those things are humbling sometimes. like It's really hard to do. We don't want to acknowledge, yeah, I need to ask for help with this. But again, that's part of getting through life is knowing that you have a community and having support from other people.
0: So you mentioned with the suffering and adversity, right? So I know in your book, you talk about this and I want to touch on for those who may not know a little bit of your journey, because like you said, you turned into an author, but it was pretty much because of life experience that led you to write these books. So could you talk a little about some of the things that led up to writing 13 things?
1: Yeah. As a therapist, originally I thought, whoa, I learned all this stuff in college and I'm going to teach this to people, but it was really through my own experience that I learned the most about mental strength. Right. I lost my mom when I was 23. And then on the three-year anniversary, it was three years to the day of the, mo- the day that my mom passed away. I lost my 26-year-old husband to a heart attack. And losing the two closest people in my life, uh, boy, was that something that just really made me think about, you know, are all these skills and things I'm teaching people in my office like what's actually going to work for me when I'm at my lowest point? How do you get through grief? And I knew our tendency was to go around the pain. Whenever we're dealing with difficult things, we just want to distract ourselves. We want to do anything we can to try to avoid it. But I knew as a therapist that those are the things that create long-term suffering for us, that if you really want to heal, you have to go through. And one of the other things I had learned as a therapist was when I looked at people who came into my therapy office and they would go through tough times and they would come out on the other side and still be the kind hopeful person. I was like what separates those people from other people who were still suffering and struggling so much maybe 20 years after something happened that they felt like their life just could never be good again. And I realized it wasn't about what people did, sometimes it was about what they didn't do. People that didn't have certain unhealthy habits seemed to be able to thrive in life kind of like no matter what life threw their way, they could get through it. And so I practiced that in my own life like, oh all right, what do I do? Well, don't feel sorry for yourself tops my list because that's where I was at that point and a few years after that, you know, I worked really, really hard to get through my grief to to work on my pain and to figure out, like, what am I going to do? This was not what I had planned for my life, but this is what happened. So where am I going to go from here? And at the age of 26, most of my friends were just starting to talk about getting married or having kids. And I was a widow and it was such a strange place to be for so many reasons, but it took years before I felt like, all right, I'm going to rebuild this new life for myself. And I did. And I got, I got remarried. I got a new house, a new job. And my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer, like almost as soon as life started to look bright again. And it was then that I wrote the list of what 13 things that mentally strong people don't do. I didn't mean for it to become a book. It was a letter to Mm -hmm. myself. And a few days after I wrote it, I published it on the Mm -hmm. internet and I thought a few people would read it, but 50 million people read it and that's why I get to be here today still talking about mental strength but and and I'm so grateful that I get to be an author and I get to now live on a sailboat in the Florida Keys and life is amazing but it's not like the greatness that came out of it outweighs the stuff that I went through cuz sometimes people will be like well that's great you know this amazing thing happened to you and you deserved it and that's not how life works it's not like if you have something horrible happen then you have something just as equally great happen life isn't fair. And part of my work through that was just accepting that, that yeah, uh, life isn't fair. Sometimes we're going to have bad things that happen to us and it might not necessarily be our fault, but life's kind of short. And to figure out how do I work through the pain? How do I um, come out of this and still create the best life I can, despite the hand I was dealt. It's really important to me. And I feel like I'm just blessed now to be able to go around and still talk to people about mental strength um, all these years later.
0: It's great stuff. And like I said, that's how I reached out to you. I read your book about 2015 and a lot of things that I do in my practice with my mental coaching, with my athletes or my military, whoever it is, I draw on a lot of similar traits from the book because I like how you approach it. Cause I talk a lot about from the cognitive side, like cognitive biases. And one of the biggest ones I talk about in my lectures or workshops is survivorship bias, because we typically look at the ones who win or succeed. If you ask Michael Jordan, how'd you become so great? He said, I I just do it like kind of like Nike, right? But with your book, you said the things that mentally strong people don't do. So that's giving an eye to the peop- the things people don't talk about. You know, it's easy to tell from the greatest CEOs or athletes, keep working hard, be driven. I think we all know that. But when you talk about the the things that go under the radar, like the hardships, the adversities, the bouncing back after you knew you were counted out, but you said, you know what? Life is like this. So maybe I need to just re-strategize. And sometimes it doesn't go my way. And That's why I took a lot from that book. And I think more people should look at it that way, in my honest opinion. But that's just me.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I thought because, again, I wrote this as a letter to myself, but as a therapist, I was taught, like, hey, build on people's strengths. As a social worker, we were told when somebody comes into your office and they're doing something well, like, point that out to them. And I thought, yeah, that's great. But, like, if I went to see a physical trainer and they told me to run on the treadmill, like, I'd do it all day long if I wanted to become a better runner or I wanted to get in better shape. But... I'd be really angry if that trainer didn't tell me, like, don't eat junk food because that jelly donut that you eat is going to cost you an hour more on the treadmill. Like, hey, I'd rather give up that extra jelly donut than run on the treadmill for another hour. That's what I felt like when people would come into my, In my therapy, therapy office. Sometimes it just took one or two unhealthy counterproductive habits and it kind of erased all the good habits that they already had. And I knew when I was at a rough point in my life, the last thing I wanted was like a 12 page to do list of all the things (laughs) I should be implementing. I was like, oh, not so much. But if I had this list of just what not to do, then it was like it seems much more manageable. Like if I woke up in the morning and said, hey, as long as you don't do these certain things, you can get through this. And it really helped. And I still find that to this day, like as long as I can just say, you know, as long as you don't do these things, like you'll be okay seems way easier to me than thinking, all right, I have to do 50 things today to get through the day.
0: Yeah, that's that's perfect because like the brain, you know, chunk of information, it's a lot easier to remember the, the groups of information that are pertinent to what you're trying to do versus the the 50 other things that are obvious. So why not give attention to what you just need? But um, you mentioned fitness and I talked about this before we got on. And I definitely want to touch on that because obviously there's a lot of talk with whether it's science or just how people talk about how exercise is a great stress reliever which there is data to back that up but how does that play into because i'm big on fitness i'm a former athlete myself so i see your page you're working out you look in great shape so your trainer thumbs up so or if you, i don't know if you don't have a trainer if it's just you thumbs up to you but uh basically well how's that play into your journey just in general
1: so you know i grew up kind of a chubby kid and i was always told i was big boned and we're in in our family and it was genetics <laughs> but uh a few years ago i was at somebody's birthday party and um I met somebody who had gotten six pack abs in 30 days. It it was a man, Mark Malkoff. He has a Ted talk about it. And, um, and I was like, that's kind of cool. Like, do you think a woman could do it? So I called his trainer, Robert brace, who's in New York. Everybody always wants to know who my trainer is. I lived in Maine that summer, but I called him up and I said, Hey, I'd like to get six pack abs. What do you think? And, um, and I'd like to do it in 30 days. And he's known for getting people in shape. But I said, you know, my, I'm just doing this for fun. I'm not doing it for um, I'm not like a celebrity who's going to be in a movie. So nobody's going to see this but me. But I'd like to see if it's possible. He didn't know what I did for work. I met him in person just once. He walked me through these steps and he said, a lot of this is going to be mental. And I said, no problem. <laughs> like, I got that far down. If you tell me to do something, I'll do it as long as it's healthy. I didn't want to cross the line into anything unhealthy. And so for 30 days, um. I got in the best shape of my life. Like before that, as an adult, I used to run a little bit here and there. I would go to the gym occasionally, that kind of stuff. And I and I enjoyed running and I did more cardio than weightlifting. But for that 30 days, it was mostly um, sprinting and weightlifting. Mm-hmm. And I made the biggest transformation I'd ever made. Like I could have probably from the first like 20 years, I was just doing more cardio. Well, then in 30 days, I made way more progress than I had in 20 years. And it was one of those reminders. Like when you move something up on your priority list, like working out was probably number five on my priority list before that, but I made it number one and I wouldn't have stuck with that for a long time because I mean, it impacted my social life. It impacted lots of areas of my life to make sure I was doing these fairly intense workouts. But, um, but I found if I did that for just 30 days, like staying in shape has been pretty easy. Like I don't, um, Mm -hmm. I don't really have to work at it nearly as hard because once I built the muscle, like maintaining it it is way easier. But it was just another one of those reminders in life. Like this is a great way to practice a lot of the skills that I teach in a very tangible way. Like when I, I still run a timed mile every day um, as fast as I can and try to beat the six minute mile mark. But like you get to the three quarter mile mark and my brain is like, you can't possibly do this. And it's a great way to then Proof to myself, I don't have to listen to my brain. My body can go a lot further than my brain thinks I can, and so that's just one example. But there's so many times where I get to then use my brain, or when I'm my brain tells me like, "Oh, you're too tired today, or you shouldn't go to the gym. You can take a break." I inherently know I'll feel better after I go to the gym, so it's a great opportunity to practice pushing myself to do something that I don't want to do, and so I find that working out is just a really tangible way to take mental strength and put it into practice in a way that I can then see the results and for me, obviously I feel better when I exercise. There's so much science behind that too. But um, other way around too, I feel like um, just that connection between the mental strength and the physical strength. And and, um, it's a two-way street that when I build muscle, I feel better mentally. And then when I'm feeling better mentally, it's easier to build more physical strength.
0: I love that. It's like a revolving door. And I talk about that myself a lot because it's like, you said it, people associate it with more of the science-based stuff like endorphins or things like that. But you said that setting the goal, achieving it, or pushing yourself past what you thought you could do. So you're associating like the physical aspect gets tied in with the mental. So it's like, I say, oh, I did this. And now my brain's reinforcing it as something positive, because typically you talk about exercise, you say people don't like it's usually because it feels painful or hard to do. But now you're reinforcing that behavior with like, oh, I like this because I finished it, I got the goal, I ran a six minute mile, I ran a 540 mile, whatever it is. By the way, what's your fastest mile, just wondering?
1: Uh, like 611, I'm trying to break oh. six and I can't quite get there.
0: <laughs> hey, that, that's still impressive. I think, I'm a sprinter myself and I know you mentioned you did sprints, so that's my, my cup of tea, but when I do do longer, distance, like a mile, I think I ran like a 650, so you got me, you got me. So. It's oh,
1: hard, <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I'm not getting any younger, but I'm gonna go out there and do it every day. And and I think that's been that's one funny. of the cool things too, is because I grew up always been being like kind of the chubby kid thinking that I was big boned. But after I was able to get six pack abs and we ended up taking a before and an after picture, kind of, I didn't plan on it, but then um, my trainer now uses that to help inspire other people. But I said, you know, like, how do you, how do you think this happened that I was able to get such good results in 30 days? Cause not everybody can do it no matter how hard they try. And he said, well, it's probably genetics. You have really good genetics. To which I laughed hysterically. And I said, you know, all my life I was told the opposite. And I think it was just a wonderful example, again, of mental strength in figuring out like what core beliefs do we carry around with us that absolutely aren't true. And yet it like takes something like super obvious to be able to really then say, oh, yeah, all these years, something that I held very true to myself was actually a lie the entire time.
0: It's almost like a, a form of like learned helplessness in a way, because it's like if you were told from birth to say 20 20- six or, or late 20s that it runs in your family that you're big boned or overweight, you're not going to try. Because my work in the exercise science field when I was a strength coach, is like, we all have a genetic potential and humans are more sim- similar than different. Like we, we're unique in our individual aspects, sure. But from a holistic standpoint, we're pretty similar. So for the most part, there's a potential that most will never even try. So the fact that you finally tried it and now he's like, it's in your family or it's in your genetics. It seemed crazy to hear, but it's like, you had that potential literally for 20 plus years. So,
1: you know, I, I did a, my own podcast, we were talking about sentimental items that we keep. And I've talked before on the podcast when I was a kid, I loved big Macs, like McDonald's big Macs were like one of my favorite things. And I used to bring them to, um, a cold one to lunch, even as a little kid, that would be my lunch at school, like (laughs) really unhealthy. And, um, you know, we were just talking about that and how, because I thought, you know, it doesn't matter. You're probably going to be overweight anyway. Like I never really tried. And it wasn't until I put in some effort to say, you know, maybe this belief isn't true about myself. And mm-hmm. in another one was I grew up a really shy kid and I never talked. And all my teachers used to write on my report cards that I was painfully shy. And so because somebody told me I was painfully shy, it, I became an even shyer person. And it wasn't until like I gave a TED talk and 22 million people saw it. <laughs> now I do a podcast for a living and I get to do amazing things and speak in public and get paid for it. And I think, Yet all of these years, I just was told I was really shy and thought I didn't have anything to say to anyone. And it took really tangible evidence for me to think perhaps, perhaps that wasn't that true. Wasn't.
0: <laughs> so that, that's a perfect segue then, because it's just showing like all of those influences up to that point. I guess we can talk a little bit about your book about parents. So is the approach with the 13 things for just strong people? How does that carry over to the, the parent sector?
1: Yeah, well, after I wrote 13 Things Manly Strong People Don't Do, I had so many people write to me and say, if only I had learned this as a kid, my entire life might have been different. I wish I would have been younger when I learned it. And a lot of people were asking me to write a book for kids, which I eventually did. But I didn't want to just write a book for 10 year olds. I thought I want to write a book for parents and for teachers so that they can then instill these things. If I tell your 10 year old what to do. Um, they're really gonna struggle unless we have an adult to reinforce it. So I wrote the parenting book and it's 13 things mentally strong parents don't do, but it's really about how parents can give up the unhealthy habits that tend to uh, cause kids to struggle in life. Like when parents uh, take too much responsibility for the kids' emotions, like when we cheer them up cause they got cut from the team or we calm them down cause they're upset. We don't teach them to do those things for themselves. And then they grow up not having those emotion regulation skills. Or when we give in to kids because we feel guilty, like we're teaching them to do the same thing. So then your 12-year-old says, well, my friend said, if you were a good friend, you'd let me cheat off, cheat off your paper. I felt guilty, so I gave in. Well, that kid's parents last night gave in because he was crying and he didn't want to do his homework or whatever it is. And so you think the things that we model to our kids definitely matters more than we might think. And the skills that we teach them and we have opportunities every single day to help kids learn but most of us weren't ever taught that as kids so we don't know how to do that so i really wanted to write a book to teach parents like here are some of the things you can do here's times when you can step back and times when you can step in so that we are giving kids the guidance and the skills that they need so that they can grow up to be mentally strong too
0: that's good because i see a lot nowadays i think this you can probably answer better than me since you're in therapy a therapist but I notice a lot of people acknowledging like their childhood traumas or things they went through. Like there's a big movement on addressing like whether it's a mother. I, I heard this term I wasn't familiar with called the narcissistic mother. And I had a client actually who brought it up to me. So not saying it's the same thing, but it's like it seems like more people are acknowledging this as an adult, 35, 40, whatever it is. So the fact that you have a book that leads because it's it's more than likely like I'm a parent, my daughter's eight years old, and I was fortunate enough to have both my parents in my life. They're still around. And I only know what they showed me. And I I was fortunate there was ups and downs, of course, don't get me wrong, but they showed me pretty well and I go off of that. So part of my parenting skills does come from them. So the fact that you have this book is great because now it's like, it may not be a end all be all, but it's something that people can take into consideration because I think in 2023, we're way more, I would say open if you think so, that to the mental side of things.
1: I think so too. You know, I think the pendulum swings back and forth for a long time. It was like, if you uh, survived your childhood, good for you. And, you know, kids were to be seen and not heard. And then we got to the point where it was like, parents were kind of like, I don't want my kids to have a tough time in life. The pendulum went too far the other way. And that's where we started to see like the helicopter parents who would say, you know, I don't want my kids to experience any stress. So I'm going to swoop in at the first sign." <laughs> and then we realized, you know, maybe that's a bad idea because the kids are turning 19 and 20 and they, are struggling when they get a B on their first college test. And so how do we make sure that we find that happy medium where we're giving them the skills and tools that we need. And so many people are realizing that, that their childhood affected them in some pretty strange ways. And maybe they turned 40 and they're thinking about, you know, when I was six, my parents did this and it wasn't a good idea or I never learned these things when I was growing up and here's the result of it. And you can sometimes connect the dots pretty, pretty clearly people will come into my therapy office and be like, do I have to talk about my childhood? Nope. We don't always have to go there. And sometimes people really want to take a deep dive, but other times, I mean, you don't necessarily need to. And I believe most parents do the best they can with what they have. And they may not have just not have had the skills and tools that they could um, give you either because they learned, didn't learn those things from their parents either.
0: Yeah. I I taught um, at a local college here in Broward County, Broward College for about six years. And you talk about helicopter parents. And it's interesting because since it's a more of a community style college, I get age ranges from 18 to literally 70. So having students, I've had students where you say the first B, I've had that come to my office and it's like, what are you doing? Like, well, how can we fix this? And I'm like, well, it's only the second assignment of the semester. We got eight weeks left. Like, it's not the end of the world, but it was like, how can I make this up? And you can say that might come from the whole, they were held to this standard where nothing was ever wrong. and. I'm not sure familiar with Carol Dweck. I know she talks a lot about with like the growth mindset. And when they they had this, this standpoint of an A means you're great and a, a C or D means you're bad. So now they just look at everything as if I don't get a good grade or a good reinforcement, my whole identity is tied into that.
1: Yeah, me too. I was a... A community college uh, lecturer for several years too. And I got the exact same thing where parents would call me up and say, what are we going to do about this? Cause it was, they were really thinking like, you know, this is a problem we have to do something. And you know, I worked with young people who sometimes their parents were still calling them at you know, 8 AM to make sure they would get up for class every day. And there's research too on um, like how many parents show up to their adult kids job interviews. I forget this act, actual statistic, but it's horrifying. I want to say it's like HR people say like 24% really? of them have heard from adults like parents who either want to help negotiate their kids' salaries or they want to argue if a kid didn't get a job. And I say kid, but I'm talking about people in their 20s. <laughs> wow. And you think this is a strange world we live in that for uh, you know, a period in time where parents are trying to negotiate their college graduates salary. Um, so yeah, I really think we need to make sure that we're giving kids the skills that they need. So by the time they get to be 19 and 20, that they can be much more independent than that.
0: I was not aware of that stat. I I didn't even think that would be a stat. Like if it even was, I would think hopefully the low three, four percents, but you said up to 20, give or take, I'm gonna look that up. But the fact that exists, is pretty interesting to know that we're in a point in life where I'm not, I'm not trying to say back in the good old days, you know, but it's like, I remember my first job, it's funny, I worked at a, a Cold Stone Creamery. I was 16 years old and I had to walk to work and I only got paid like $6 an hour. And it was actually, believe it or not, it was hard work because I didn't, I worked the front too. I was doing a little mixing and the singing, but since I was strong and bigger, I did a lot of the heavy lifting in the back. So it's like, I couldn't imagine at that age, you know, my mom and dad's like, hey, Nick needs more of this or that let alone 27 years old, so.
1: Right, exactly. Uh,
0: but yeah, so I want to kind of jump back a little bit. I meant to ask this when we touched on it, but I was thinking of something that gets a lot of attention when we talk about like adversity or even just loss, and it's the the Cooper or Ross stages of grief. And I was curious on your thoughts on that, because I know from a empirical side of it, it gets a lot of criticism, but is it one of those things like you just, take what makes sense and leave the rest? Or is it something you look at as like, "Mm, I don't know.
1: You know, I think my personal opinion on it is like, yeah, there's a lot of different things that people tend to go through when they grieve. But as a therapist, I really don't like that those stages are out there because what would happen is if somebody would come in and they'd be like, what stage am I in? Or how do I hurry up and get to the next stage? As if it were like a linear process. And it's not. When we go through grief, whether you're grieving because you lost a loved one or you're grieving something else in your life. You like you lost a job. Like it's not a straight line. Things go up and they go down. You might be angry one day, sad the next. And it's like a wave where you might be happy for three weeks and then boom, something hits you again. So I don't like the fact that people were always just looking like to rush through all of the stages as fast as they could just to get to the next one. And think, okay, the, the anger's over, I'm, I'm moving on now. And it's not really like that. And so I do believe that we do experience all those different kinds of emotions for the most part, but that they don't necessarily happen in a nice, neat order. And granted, you know, they've come out and said, said just that, but I don't think the message gets out there to everybody. There's still a lot of people who have that belief that like grief is something that you um can hurry through or work through really quickly. And then you're going to come out better on the other side. And my other big one is when people think that time heals because it doesn't, I would have people that would come into my therapy office and it might be 10 years after something horrible happened and they were just still waiting to feel better, but they hadn't really worked on anything. Instead, they just tried to avoid the pain as much as they could for 10 years, thinking that. If enough time passed that somehow their wounds would heal, but they hadn't yet. So I think there's so many um, misconceptions out there and we don't really talk about grief and we applaud people when they tend to look good after they go through something, whether it's some sort of trauma, like they're like, oh, wow, you're so strong. You just made it through that looking unscathed. (laughs) But you never know what kind of scars people have on the inside and I don't think that we should applaud people because they look like they uh, aren't in pain on the outside. As a therapist I got the inside scoop on how people were and I mean I had people that from the outside looked like they were fine. fine. They had amazing jobs they looked incredibly put together. They laughed they smiled and they would come into my office and tell me the intense pain that they were in. And yet most people in their lives, sometimes even their closest friends or family members had no idea, but because they'd been applauded for being really strong, quote unquote, and getting through something, they just now felt like, well, how would I tell anybody otherwise? Or I feel pressured to keep acting like I'm okay when I don't feel okay on the inside.
0: Yeah. because th- That's a great point because you look at say all you celebrities, since we, we don't know them, but we see them more than we see the average Joe every day. like People like Robin Williams, who literally spent 40 years making people laugh or Recently, there was a guy, he, um, DJ Twitch from the Ellen Show, and he was a dancer. And I don't really follow him that avidly, but I knew he was pretty big on positivity and he was a dancer. So people love people who make them laugh and feel good. And then you see things, unfortunately, that they would end up doing. And it's like, so going back to what you said, it sets that precedent of, like, like we mentioned before, with the stoicism argument, like, oh, they didn't feel bad. They must be okay. And it, it goes to the point of they might want someone check on them. Like who I think you mentioned kind of earlier, like who's strong for the strong people when they get weak, because they're like, well, I know they're not going to help me. So I might as well just bottle it up. And like I said, in your line of work, you probably see that more often than not.
1: I do. And the longer we cover things up and we keep it inside, it's just so hard to come forward and say, you know, I'm, I'm struggling or I'm having a hard time or, How do you suddenly talk to your friends or your family? How do you call them up and say, I'm having a hard time with this if they if they don't know already? And I like it when we hear stories of people who who are struggling and they because they come forward and they have the courage to say, you know, even though I look like I'm all together on the outside, here's what's going on. And sometimes it's easy for celebrities or athletes to say, yeah, I used to have depression, but I'm all better now. But lately, I think if anything good came out of the pandemic, it's that more people are stepping forward and saying, I'm struggling and I'm still struggling and I'm out here talking about it, even though I'm still having a difficult time with this. And I think when we see more of that, it kind of normalizes like, wow, a lot of other people struggle too, because one of the biggest things I would see as a therapist is people would come into my office and say, I'm having a hard time, but I feel like I'm the only one struggling with this. Well, then the next person would come in and say almost the exact same thing. And nobody would know that, yeah, there's a lot of other people struggling with the same kinds of issues or the same uncomfortable feelings because we don't talk about them. We tend to put the the shiniest best stuff on social media. And when people say, how are you? It's tempting to say good. Or I hear a lot of people say, well, I don't want to be negative. So I don't want to tell anybody that I'm having a hard time. And they feel guilty if they were to say, you know, I'm, I'm having a difficult time because they think I'm bringing my friends or family down and I don't want to do that. And uh, I hate to hear that because I feel like, how do we really connect with people? It's often being vulnerable and sharing about the things that we're struggling with.
0: So that's interesting to say that because I had a conversation with one of my colleagues a few weeks ago about this. And we're talking about like, you know, the pop psychology stuff, because there's definitely good stuff out there that promotes a lot of good messages like your stuff. But then I see things, whether it's a licensed person or not, that promotes just that. Oh, be positive. People talk about things like self-care and and I'm all for it, but I guess it comes down, like you said before, with the other things, it has to have like a little more substance to it, right? Like it's not just a term we use as, hey, I'm doing self-care. If that looks like uh, what a spa day, cool. But what goes deeper than that? Because I definitely think relaxation, especially like say I'm a former strength coach, you have to have that downtime to recover, but that's just one aspect of it. So what is your take on like how people go about from the more the pop buzzword of self-care and just feel better versus like, what does it really take in your eyes?
1: Yeah, i oh, glad you asked that too, because that is one of my pet peeves. Cause I see a lot of that where people will be like, you know, I'm gonna cancel on my friends today because I'm gonna stay home and take care of myself. But like real self-care would be about putting time in your schedule to take care of yourself so that you don't have to cancel on people at the last second. Or self-care, sometimes people wanna go get their nails done. Or they say, I'm going to go to the spa. Well, like, and if you love getting your nails done, maybe that is self-care. But if you're just getting your nails done because you have pressure to like look good for other people, like that's not self-care. And I think people assume that self-care is supposed to feel good all the time. But like, I don't know, going to the gym doesn't always feel amazing in the moment. (laughs) Or pushing myself to do hard things doesn't feel good at that time. But that's what real self-care is, is like looking at the long term. It's not just indulging in whatever feels good right now. But I get, I see that get twisted so much where people say, I'm just going to stay home today and practice some self-care. People will say that about mental health days too. Like, I'm just going to stay in bed today. I've never met anybody who said, you know, my depression got better because I stayed in bed for three days, or I'm just so glad I stayed home for four days in a row and took care, quote unquote, took care of myself, like... Sometimes you got to push yourself to do those really hard things. And that's what it means to try to take care of your mind, take care of your body in the long-term and that we shouldn't be short-sighted and say, I'm just going to do what feels good right now.
0: That's so true because I, I use analogy all the time when I work with some of my clients and we often, I, as a whole, look at mental health as a passive thing. And it can be, like you said, if it looks like that in certain circumstances, sure. But I look at it as like, it's going to fitness. We're both active people. So think about like warming up and stretching. You need to do that, but that's not the only part of your workout. Like you said, you're going to get under that weight. You're going to run those sprints. You're going to run that mile. That's physically taxing. That's going to break down the muscle tissue and make you sore. That's also part of the physical health. So going with the term strength, whether it be physical or mental, I look at it almost as the same premise. Like you have to do stuff, like you said, that doesn't feel the best. Not saying you purposely hinder yourself, but some things might come at a cost and you talk about in your book one of my favorite parts was taking calculated risk like I'm an entrepreneur you have your business I'm sure with the book I don't know if you have a business outside of outside of your consulting with the art the therapy I should say but do you do anything outside of that as far as like entrepreneurship
1: it's so I'm the editor-in-chief of very well mind I host the very well mind podcast and oh, I yes. write books and I speak and um sell courses and so yeah I guess oh, yes. part, part yeah. entrepreneur part
0: <laughs> no not part you're full you're full because you're, because technically your practice is still entrepreneur. So you're all around. So, but getting to that point, calculated risk. Right. And that was one of the chapters I wrote down three I wanted to talk about, but that was the, one of my biggest, because as an entrepreneur, I'm in my facility upstairs, recording this, but there's a lot of part going back to what people do and don't do to succeed or be stronger. This is a side of entrepreneurship. You can probably t- uh, talk about too, is taking that calculated risk, the things that seem like, uh, if I do this, it may help me, but it might not. But I have to try. So, how does that affect you?
1: Yeah. So often I think that we tend to think that the level of risk is equal to our level of fear. So, if something feels scary, we think it's really risky. But the truth is, our fear thermometers are broken. And just because something feels scary doesn't mean that it's risky. Like getting in a car is much riskier than giving a speech. But if you ask somebody what feels, what's riskier. People are like, I'm not giving a speech in front of a hundred thousand people. That would be terrifying, but I'll get in the Uber and drive across the country or something like that without thinking twice. But in terms of being an entrepreneur, like for me, I spent many years where I gave up a paycheck. I was a therapist when I wrote my first book, I continued to be a therapist. And I thought, this is great. I'm a therapist. And I got to write a book, and. I had this moment where I thought, well, do I want to try to write a second book and do I want to cut down on my therapy hours? Like, do I dare step away from a, a job where I have benefits and everything else and take this risk? And I did. I sort of, and I know a lot of people say like, burn the boats, make sure you don't have a plan B. But for me, I needed to make sure that I had a plan B. Otherwise I couldn't concentrate on plan a like worst case scenario. What am I going to do? Well, I'll just go back to being a therapist and I'll find a job somewhere. And so i moved to a sailboat in the florida keys and just kept writing books and i'm glad that i did but for a long time there was no like paycheck from anybody other than if i sold books or i got speaking gigs and sold courses things like that and depended completely on that income without knowing like i didn't even know if people were going to buy my books or if they'd read them or if i'd ever earn royalties on them it's kind of a gray area for a long time but i took that leap thinking you know what do, what would i regret more trying it or not trying it And thought, yeah, let's give it a shot and see what happens. And clearly it worked out for me and I'm glad that I did, but, but tough to do. to step away from that safety of a paycheck and health insurance and those sorts of things for sure.
0: Yeah. I I call it personally, I call it the uh, hunter gatherer income. It's kind of like, you gotta go fight and hunt for what you're getting every course sale. I do the same thing with my courses, with my consulting, You, you basically can't sit there. And I think a big misconception like we say, we're in this be your own boss, successful generation, which I'm all for it because literally we're both people who practice it. But it's like, like you said, you talk about the other side. I talk about the other side because we hear a lot of infomercials or Instagram uh, sponsor posts. Do you want to make more money but work less? And I always argue you're actually going to work more. You're going to give up one boss for 100 bosses. And like you said, I haven't wrote a book, but I'm sure writing a book comes with a lot of red tape that it's not simple as just here's the pages, let's go, right?
1: Yeah. And there is that attitude of like, you don't have to work for anybody. Well, like you said, yeah, I work for a lot of people now. (laughs) I have publishers and agents and things like that. And every speaking opportunity I have, like there's people that have a contract with me. So they work with a lot of people. And yeah, I don't know of any entrepreneurs that really don't work a lot of hours. You'll see that. Like I'll see the ads or the articles that are like, this person makes $300,000 a year and they only work 12 hours. I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of stuff. And then you have to make so many decisions, like how much time are you going to spend on social media? And it's not a direct return. Most of the time, you're not going to make money for the hours you spend on social media, but then you have to figure out like how much time are you going to spend writing newsletters or doing other things that may not have a direct return. And are you going to hire people to help you or not? And there's no real like roadmap for any of this. And it's about figuring out your own way. I know when I wrote my book at first, people said, well, you write a book so that you can get speeches. You're not going to make money on the book. You'll make money on speeches. And I thought, oh, interesting. Then I'd run into somebody else who said, well, I give speeches so I can sell my books. And I was all (laughs) (laughs) interested. It took a while to figure out what my business model was going to be and where my, which streams of revenue I was going to be able to rely on more than others.
0: That's a good point because I'm in the same way. And then we talked briefly before we started, like what I exactly do, I actually took time to figure that out because it's like, I have different skill sets, but like you said, the one that makes sense has, or the one that makes the income has to make the more sense. Like, yes, you can do the speeches. Like you said, if you're making more on the speeches, cool. And then the booksellers are just icing on the cake or vice versa. I'm sure there's people who might come out the gate swinging with their book and they sell millions of copies and the engagements are just like, oh, I can go talk here and there. So it's like really finding that that niche.
1: Right, right. And figuring out, yeah, to, when do I want to take the leap and where do I want to invest my time and money and, and energy and how much money do you want to invest? There's so many things. And I made some plenty of mistakes along the way. I didn't know what I was doing. And somebody said to me the other day, it's really cool. Like on your first book, you didn't have a single person endorse it. And I was like, you know, I'd never met another author. I'd ne- I didn't have any friends who were influencers or anything. Like it wasn't an option to have anybody to do it. And so I had to figure it all out for myself.
0: When you wrote it, what year was that? 2013? 2014.
1: 2014.
0: So I think, honestly, the influencer market, I don't think it was what it is today. Because I got on Instagram, I think in 2012, and it was pretty mundane. It was like people sharing their food, going out the influencer, like even well, I guess my space was a little before that Twitter was a thing, but I don't really think it even was a mark. So you were way ahead of this influx of like getting XYZ person to talk about your thing online for whether it's money or they just really liked it. So you really didn't have that advantage in a sense, like the internet was there, but it still was kind of like new in a sense.
1: Yeah. I think it was like Twitter. So I had, um, when I wrote the article and published the article, Forbes magazine picked it up and that's where it started to go viral. And, um, then all of these celebrities started tweeting it like Juliette Lewis and Don Cheadle. Oh, and it just took a few celebrities to share it and then it kind of ballooned. In today's world, I don't think it would be nearly as easy to write an article that would go viral because things like TikTok videos are gonna go viral way faster than an article. Like you don't really see an article go viral. So the timing of it for me was definitely on my side.
0: And that's cool because you talk about how things don't always go as planned. And usually when we think that, we think the negative side of, well, you might not get the job or you might not get the idea or whatever it may be. But in that case, it was the opposite side. And I personally like to talk about that, too. Like I say, negativity is not the bad thing. We just need to anticipate and understand it. But let's understand the positive side. And I'm sure you you had, like I said, you didn't plan on it, but it went away that you did not expect. And here we are a decade later, you know.
1: You know, and at first when it first my article went viral, I I wasn't like all that happy about it because I was a therapist and nobody knew the backstory of why I had written it. And mm. psychology today is quite well respected. They came out with an article about all the things that were wrong with my article. And I remember thinking, like, I think I've just ruined my career. <laughs> And wondering like what was gonna possibly happen to me now that I had done this. And when I published the article, it was for $15. And I thought for $15, I may have just ruined my career as a therapist. Luckily that didn't happen. And one of the people that read the article happened to be a literary agent who called and said, you should write a book. But because I didn't even know what a literary agent was, I didn't even return her call at first because my emails, my phone was blowing up because so many people were reading this article. Luckily, she called back again and said, No, really, you should write a book and kind of had to um, motivate me to do it. But I was like, I'm a therapist, I don't share my story. There's a story behind it. I didn't tell it in the article. But if I write a book, people are going to want to know why I wrote it. And had to take my own advice of sometimes it's okay to be a little vulnerable and share your story and um, chose to do it. And I'm obviously glad I did now.
0: Uh, That's, that's not surprising to hear because I know every industry I know has this, but I know in the social science or the brain sciences, psychology, neuroscience, since it's like a lot of intangible parts, obviously there's biological aspects of the mind and all that. But when you get into like the psychology and the social aspects, I know there's a lot of scrutiny. I see it in my field and I can understand that scrutiny, but it it can just give credence to your work because you were scrutinized. People might've put you down. And then you also talked about Uh, they don't mentally strong people don't resent others success so that's like a perfect example of like I'm not saying they were hating on you because psychology day I respect that I definitely have read articles from there throughout my career and it's like from a person maybe not psychology day but in general did you experience of that from your circle or people maybe not your friends but adjacent to you and other maybe colleagues when you started getting traction
1: yeah so My, you know, my friends and my family, everybody has been super supportive and then of me throughout the journey, but like other self-help authors sometimes aren't always the kindest people. And it's amazing because, um, right. I know it's just, it's now that I have the inside (laughs) scoop on what some of this is like, but like I had one who, um, you know, wrote wrote a letter that was not very kind, and it's sort of like the person who talks about kindness. Or I had somebody that publicly said some fairly mean things, and it's somebody who writes about bullying, right? <laughs> and <laughs> and um, I don't mean
0: to laugh, but that's that's crazy. Like it's it's counterproductive to what they're pushing, but there they are writing you.
1: Right. And so, um, yeah, I certainly had to deal. Not everybody was happy with it. And, you know, obviously when you put stuff out there, you'll get reviews, comments, things from people that um, don't necessarily appreciate what you're doing. And then on the other hand, it's also tempting sometimes to look around and think, well, how come this person sold 20 million books? And how come this person, their advice is really, really popular, even though maybe I don't think it's all that sound when it comes to mental health advice yet, you know, it has way more views than my stuff does. How come? So there is that tendency. And I think in today's world where it's so easy to see how somebody else's business is doing, how much traffic their website gets, how many followers they have on social media, Mm -hmm. we can easily get bogged down into comparing ourselves to how we think other people are doing.
0: Well, from my perspective, as someone who's in the psychology field, but also has read your work. I personally look at anything in these, these categories, whether it's your work. I, like I said, I wear Carol Dweck. There's Anders Ericsson. I read his stuff with Peak Performance and uh, Deliberate Practice. I personally look for the ones like yourself or them who have some kind of educational background. It doesn't necessarily have to be PhD or 2,200 pages of research, but they have that foundation because I respect that more because I know you still have a spin on it because you told your story, but you still integrated the, the literature, the work from the the empirical evidence on top of that versus some self-help authors I personally don't really get into because of the opposite. I'm fine with telling great. I'm not saying I wouldn't read it, but I just hold it to a different standard. So I can maybe see why I don't know who they were, but if they didn't have that background, I could kind of see why, because now they might be taking offense to it, even though you didn't do anything because, oh, wow, she, she's coming from this la- this angle and we don't have that kind of thing.
1: Yes, I agree completely.
0: Yeah, so uh, I always like to end these with kind of, like I say, I'm big on the applied psychology and since you literally write on this topic and even have a workbook that's out right now for the 13 Things mentally Strong People Don't Do, I like to end with two takeaways. It it could be short, it could be drawn out, it doesn't really matter. I just like it to be something that my listeners, when they finish hearing that, they're like, I could put this into practice right now. And Obviously, you have numerous, so be my guest to take us out with that.
1: Oh, this is fun. So I would say the first one is play to win. And we know, like when you watch an athlete on TV, like when Tom Brady stepped out on the football field, he wasn't like, Oh, I hope I don't lose today. I guarantee he was out there thinking like, you know, I'm here to win Yeah, in our own lives. Like you get up in front of a a crowd and you're going to give a speech. You're, you don't want your goal to be, I'm not going to embarrass myself today, or I hope I can just get through this workout. When you step up and you do something, you want to be there because you're going to do your very best. And there's studies on that, that the more that we play to win, the better we perform. So always just tell people like, what's your goal with this? And if somebody said my goal is to just not embarrass myself, nope, let's flip it over and say, then what, what could your goal actually be? Okay, my goal is to get out there and do my very best. My goal is to win. My goal is to crush my time today compared to how I did yesterday. You will know, we'll actually perform much better. So always play to win. And another one would be to just accept some self-doubt. We tend to think that we have to be filled with confidence all the time. You don't. In fact, there's research about athletes that shows somebody who has a little bit of self-doubt will outperform somebody who's completely confident almost all the time. And so, but yeah, we always think everybody else is completely confident. And if we're not, then somehow we don't belong or we shouldn't, we have no place competing against them and we're not going to be able to keep up, but the opposite's true. If you have a little self-doubt, you'll keep your head in the game. You'll concentrate better. You'll probably, um, practice more for something. You'll be better prepared when you get there, but the whole time you're competing or you're doing something, you'll be much more focused on it. Whereas the person who's completely confident, their mind might wander, they might think about other things and they won't Mm -hmm. perform as well. So know that you don't have to eliminate all self-doubt, just embrace it and you'll perform better.
0: I love to use the athlete analogies because I work with a lot of them. So I can attest that that is very true. I've seen it in real time with some of, I, I work with some UFC champions I've seen that literally what you just said in real time. So she knows what she's talking about. So with that being said, plug your social medias Where Can they find you, whether it be Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, as well as your sites and definitely your books.
1: So I am uh, Amy Morin, LCSW is in licensed clinical social worker.com. And you can find all the information about my books, my course, and those sorts of things on my website. And I'm the host of the very well mind podcast and the editor in chief of very well mind. And you can find us there at verywellmind.com.
0: All right. Thank you. It was great having you on. I learned a lot, person. I hope everyone listening can take something from this and be mentally strong.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, get your mind right.